0: Hello and welcome to this Introduction to the Book of Revelation. My name is Carl Santos. I'm the Senior Pastor at Redeemer Church in Niagara Falls. And this introduction is meant to be a companion to the series uh, through Revelation that we'll be embarking on here at Redeemer. But it's also meant to help you, even if you don't attend Redeemer, to get a better grasp of what sort of a book Revelation is, what's what's it trying to do, and how can you engage with the book in a meaningful but also responsible way. And that's kind of what we're going to do. This is going to be rather academic. We're going to really do an introduction to the book because I think it's probably the best start that we could have and one that Christians uh, don't often get uh, with the book of Revelation because many many people haven't gone to seminary and many sermon series uh, that pastors give in the book of Revelation either focus only on the letters to the churches in the first uh, in chapters 2 and 3 or on the end of the book which talks about the new heaven and new earth but it leaves out that sticky icky difficult middle part full of symbolism and rich meaning um, and we're the poorer for it and because we as pastors don't often talk about it or preach about it and don't do it very well sometimes as well um, Christians end up either neglecting the book because they don't understand it and it's confusing and scary or they end up running with wild theories about it and we end up coming away thinking that revelation is like a crystal ball But I don't think that's the case, and this introduction is going to help us to hopefully see the book in the way I think it ought to be seen. Along the way, we're going to be quoting a lot of scholars, and we're going to be doing our best to take a really safe but also good look at this book. And by safe, I don't mean safe that it's not going to be a challenging book, because it is. Anybody who doesn't feel Revelation is a challenge um, isn't reading it right. But what I mean by safe is we're going to try to understand it in such a way that we don't come away terrified or anxious as many people often do they're so anxious about what's the end of the year or are we in the end times and so on that instead of being an incredible comfort which is what revelation is it ends up becoming a source of anxiety for Christians or bewilderment so let's try to avoid that so let's begin with this question what is revelation and why has it been so challenging well let's Let's use some examples from great men and women in the history of the Church. Because Revelation has puzzled people and been misunderstood and abused for a long time since it was written. Martin Luther, the great reformer, had no interest in the book of Revelation. He says, and I quote, I can in no way detect that the Holy Spirit produced it. Christ is neither taught nor known in it. That's pretty direct for Luther. Friedrich Nietzsche, who is, of course, not a, was not a Christian and was quite hostile to the church, says this, that Revelation was, quote, the most rabid outburst of vindictiveness in all recorded history. D.H. Lawrence, novelist, short story writer, intellectual, says that Revelation is a grandiose scheme for wiping out and annihilating everybody who wasn't of the elect. The book had in it none of the real Christ, none of the real gospel. That's, again, harsh words. George Bernard Shaw, also a skeptic and a playwright, says that Revelation was, is the curious record of the visions of a drug addict. <laughs> Jack Sanders, who is a New Testament scholar, albeit a liberal one, says that Revelation is a retreat from ethical responsibility, such that its existence and its place in the canon are, in the fullest sense of the word, evil. Wow, Jack Sanders. Tina Pippin, who is a New Testament scholar but a fem—not but, but also a feminist, says that Revelation is a misogynist male fantasy at the end of time. Another liberal New Testament scholar, John Dominic Crossan, says that Revelation transforms, and this is the quote, the nonviolent resistance of the slaughtered Jesus into the violent warfare of the slaughtering Jesus. Now with all of these people, and many more we could talk about, having such differing and such harsh views of Revelation, we have to ask why? Why has it been so confusing? And, you know, more, more impactful to Revelation than these critiques from outsiders has been the wild theories of Christians themselves. One scholar I, I, and a, a, prof, prof, excuse me, a professor I had once um, said that Revelation is the happy hunting ground for all sorts of bizarre and dangerous interpretations. Um, It's been used by the church to predict the end of the world, to vilify leaders as the Antichrist, to create panic, all sorts of things. And I have to agree with scholar Michael J. Gorman when he says this, and I quote, With respect to Revelation, it must be clearly stated that some readings are not only inferior to others, they are in fact unchristian and unhealthy. And I think he's right. There's a lot of irresponsible readings and, and interpretations of Revelation and they end up misleading people or turning people off from Christianity as a whole and I think that's it's unfortunate and this is that vicious cycle that I mentioned a bit earlier revelation is bizarre so it ends up becoming ignored it's basically been removed from the canon functionally by Christians who just don't read it and because it's been ignored and it is it's often ignored from the pulpit as well it allows for wild interpretations to not only form, but to take root in the church. You see, people will always want to know what's, what Revelation is saying, and if pastors, if we don't take up the burden of trying to understand it and teach our churches, then we're kind of surrendering them to the televangelists and to those folks on the radio who talk about Bible prophecy. And so it's our job to, to do a better better job, really. So. Why do so many people get absolutely nothing from Revelation? Well, Richard Bauckham, who's one of the great scholars of Revelation, says the big issue is that we don't understand what kind of a book Revelation is. And this is important. I remember the first time I read Wuthering Heights. I was told when I was when it was given to me that this was a great love story. And if you've ever read Wuthering Heights, you know that although it's it's a love story, it is something of a tortured love story. It's dark, it's itchy, scratchy, it's brutal at times. And I remember reading it and the first half of the book maybe, maybe even more, thinking this is not a love story, at least not the way I was thinking of it. Because in my head, the love stories were going to be a little bit more of a rom-com, a little bit more Jane Austen, not to knock Jane Austen because I think she's far undervalued as, a, as, a, as an author. but. Wuthering Heights just wasn't the kind of book I thought it was, and as a result, I didn't get the most out of it. Or, to put it towards a movie context, the first time I read the cl- or watched the classic movie Dr. Strangelove by Stanley Kubrick, if you've watched it, you know Peter Sellers and uh, George C. Scott are in it, and uh, I was under the impression it was going to be a drama about the Cold War. And so when I started watching it, and I started to see, almost immediately, what I thought to be rather funny lines and funny scenes, I wasn't sure if I should laugh about it. And as a result, it wasn't until I stopped the movie and kind of asked people and googled it that I realized, oh no, Dr. Strangelove is a satire. It's a comedy. It's supposed to be poking fun at the Cold War uh, foibles. And so you see, because I didn't understand what kind of a movie it was or what kind of a book Wuthering Heights was, because I didn't understand that, I actually missed a lot from the story. So it's important, says Richard Baucom, and so, and so do I, that the first thing we do is we understand what sort of a book Revelation is. So as we seek to do that, let's ask this first question. Who wrote it and when did they write it? Because those are important. So let's start with who wrote it. So why does it, first of all, why does it even matter who wrote the book of Revelation? Well, it does and it doesn't necessarily matter. So it doesn't necessarily matter uh, because ultimately it's scripture, it affirms and upholds what is said in the rest of scripture and so it is in the canon and we can be trusted. Just like we trust the book of Hebrews, though we don't know who wrote it. And so it technically doesn't really matter who wrote it. And yet it does matter a little bit because depending on which John we're talking about who wrote this book, it could impact the dating of the book. And if we, the dating of the book has a lot to do with the meaning of the book. And so let's jump into it. There's a number of people who have argued that the book wasn't written by John, who is the apostle, meaning the sons of Zebedee, but it was written instead by a guy named John of Ephesus, John the Elder, he's often called. And although there's other people who claim other authors, those are the two main ones. So let's first look at what is the case that the apostle John wrote it. And I'll lay my cards on the table and say, I believe it was the Apostle John who wrote it. And you'll see why. But although I may be in the majority, there are people who disagree. And I'll try to talk about that. So what is the case for John the Apostle, John, son of Zebedee, for having been the author of Revelation? Well, first thing we can say, and there's many, is there's a great deal of early church uh, support. And this is probably the greatest um uh, evidence for John the Apostle being the author of Revelation. So, for instance, in 135 AD, John, uh, Justin Martyr was in a debate with a guy named Trypho, And in it, he says this. He says, There was a certain man with us whose name was John, one of the apostles of Christ, who prophesied by a revelation that was made to him that those who believed in our Christ would dwell a thousand years in Jerusalem. And so, you see, this is only about Roughly 35 or 40 years after the writing of Revelation, we think. And we'll get to the dating in a minute. And, all, and already by that time, Justin Martyr is quoting and saying that John the Apostle, who was one of the apostles of Christ, is the one who gave this revelation. And of course, he's talking about the millennial passage about reigning a thousand years. So Justin Martyr thought, and he's, he's closely connected to the time period of the apostles. And he says, this was John the Apostle. But it's not just him. Irenaeus, or Irenaeus, who is also an early church father, he quotes the book of Revelation early on in the second century. And he prefaces those quotes by saying, John, the Lord's disciple, said. And then he quotes Revelation. And Irenaeus was friends with a guy named Polycarp, who was a martyr, early Christian martyr. And he, Polycarp, claimed to know John the apostle. And so we have these early church fathers. But it's not just them. The Muratorian Canon, which is the late second century fragment of, uh, of, of text, uh, papyrus text, that, that has on it the first and oldest list of the books of the Bible listed on it. And that includes Revelation, says that John is the author. We also have Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, Hippolytus, Origen, all of them These early church fathers, who are close again into the the time of John and at the time of Revelation, say that it is the apostle who wrote it. So that's pretty strong evidence there. Few New Testament books have this much contemporaneous evidence for authorship. Um, And we also know, of course, that whoever this author was, he was steeped in the Hebrew tradition, steeped in the Hebrew Bible. Which also lends, the, lends, the, uh, lends uh, support for the claim that is the Apostle John, who was a Jew, rather than John the Elder, who was probably a Gentile, um, because this person understood Jewish culture, Jewish tradition really well. So we have a lot of evidence there, but there's also some evidence for this other John, John the Elder, John of Ephesus. And um, we'll, I'll go through it and we'll explain, I'll explain why. I don't, I'm not so sure. I'm not convinced by it. First, there is a little bit of early church support for this other John being the writer, but it's a little later. So in the mid-3rd century CE, uh, in the Common Era, uh, Dionysius of Alexandria, he claims that that it was John the Elder who wrote it. And another early church father, Eusebius, also follows him in this claim. But there is a little bit of a caveat here because both of them are saying this and it seems like the reason they are claiming it's not the apostle who wrote it is because they're trying to discredit the teaching of the millennium. Meaning, they don't like the millennium teaching in Revelation, and so it's easier to say it's not true if it wasn't an apostle who wrote it. It's just some other guy, some other John. And it's, it's not a respo- an apostle isn't responsible for it. So we have reasons to question their, their integrity, to be honest, at that moment. But Dionysius does do some things that modern scholars have done as well, and for here he deserves some credit. He notes that the themes, vocabulary, and the Greek even of the book of Revelation don't really match the themes, vocabulary, and Greek of the epistles of John, the letters of John, and the gospel of John. And although there is some credence here and there is some some fairness here, uh, many people will will say, hey, it's not as significant uh, a difference as people think. And I'll give you just a couple of examples. Uh, Well, one really is um, the theology. The Gospel of John and the letters focus on something called realized eschatology, while Revelation seems to focus on consummated eschatology. And I'll explain what the difference is. In the Gospel of John and the letters, we find that he focuses heavily on the kingdom having already come, The kingdom being in the midst, that Christ and his coming ushered in the eschaton to an extent, that the kingdom was at hand. Whereas in Revelation, and that's called realized eschatology, it's realized. But in Revelation, however, the focus seems far more on consummated eschatology, meaning the not yet. Meaning the promises from Jesus are about a future with him in glory, not so much about now. And so some people will say there's too big a difference. There's almost two different ways of seeing the kingdom here. But again, significant scholarship like guys like George Ladd will come out and say, hey, this is not nearly as significant as it's often thought. Um, there's, they're far more complementary than we, we assumed. Um, so again, although I recognize there are some legitimate reasons to ask questions about the style and vocabulary and themes, I'm not sure they're strong enough to push back against the evidence of the early church that says this was John the Apostle. But people who would argue this elder, John the Elder wrote it, will also say things about how in Revelation, John doesn't say anything but being an Apostle, as he does in, in John 21 and in 2nd John to open his letter and said the third letter of John 2, where he claims he's an Apostle and he knows Christ. There's no mention of being an Apostle or knowing Christ anywhere in Revelation. Um, so there is some reason to think that it may not be the John the Apostle. However, the early church evidence, for me anyway, sways it. Ultimately, like I said, I'm not sure it necessarily makes as huge a difference as we'd think, but it is a significant thing. I say John the Apostle, feel free to do your research and come to the conclusions you see. Now, when was it written? If John the Apostle wrote it, well, when was it written? And this is very important. There's basically two dates that most scholars would, would choose between, some, and they often call them the early or the late dating of Revelation. The early date is that the earliest the book was written near the tail end of the Emperor Nero's reign, so around 68 CE in the Common Era, or AD some people would use, but CE, Common Era is what I'll be using. So, P, the, I'm not uh, again. I'll lay my cards on the table. I believe it was a later date, closer to 96 AD. But let's go through uh, what was people who choose this earlier date, the early dating of Revelation. Well, what? Why do they do it? Well, one of the things you notice is that people who choose the early date do it uh, because they tend to see that think that Revelation was written as a polemic, meaning an attack or a, to make a case against the Jews, who rejected the Messiah. And so, they have to choose this early date because if you know your history, you know in 70 AD, the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed by the Romans. And so, people who pick this early date and who think that Revelation is written as an attack and a judgment against the Jews for rejecting Jesus, well, they need to have an early date because they see 70 AD, the destruction of the temple, as being the key moments as the partial fulfillment of this of Revelation, as it having already happened at that time. And when they do this, there's a lot of things they take, I think, for granted uh, that are not fair scripturally. So for instance, they'll see that the temp they, they, they read the temple measurements in chapter eleven of Revelation and they see them to be literal because they think that it matches um or sorry that that, that it's it's more it's a good match for what the actual physical temple was like as far as size. But what they miss here, in my estimation and in many scholars' estimation, is that the measurements in Revelation 11 actually are much closer to matching Ezekiel's measurements of the eschatological, the coming temple. Um, And so I think they miss that point. Another issue is these early daters, Will insist that six six six, you know, the mar the number uh, <laughs> that is very famous, and it's in all sorts of horror movies and everything. Uh, that that number, uh, they think, is is very significant because if you take the Hebrew writing of the name Nero, the emperor Nero, and you ass- and you do something called uh, gematir- gematria, which is when you um, it's numerology, right? Where you take every letter in the Hebrew alphabet has, has a has a as a numerical value to it. And when you add up all these numbers of the letters N-E-R-O in Hebrew, what you get is 666. And therefore, they see Nero as the great, the great dragon, the great enemy in Revelation. Now, there's a lot of problems with this, though. And I don't want to belittle it because I know a lot of Christians are big on numerology and these sorts of things. I have a problem with it, um, and many scholars do, because it assumes the name Nero has to be written in Hebrew to get to 666, not in Greek, not in Latin. And that's problematic because the book of Revelation is written in Greek to a Gentile audience in Turkey, in Asia Minor. And so it's interesting, it would be interesting, if what you had to do, the, the gymnastics you had to do to make this number six 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 work out to be Nero, was to convert it to Hebrew, a language and a, and a culture that the readers would have had very little knowledge about, by and large. So it's just it's a little it's a little curious here. And I, of course, uh, and again, think what you will. I don't buy into a lot of this numerology anyway. I think the numbers are symbolic, and there's a reason for them. And we'll get to that in the sermon series. So I'll leave it there. But um, another thing that early daters will do is they, um, they take what is said in chapter 1 verse 7 in Revelation where it says that all the world will mourn him. All the world will mourn because of what Christ is going to do when he returns. They change the word world and they say it actually reads Israel. But there's a great problem with that. There is no textual evidence that the word in Greek is Israel. There's no not even close. It's the word world. But you see, they have to do that because what they're trying to do is say that Revelation is a book that is a judgment, is written all about the judgment on Israel for rejecting the Messiah. And so what they need to do is they need the book to say that Israel will mourn, not the world. It's not written for the world. It's written to attack Israel. And that's a problem. (laughs) It's a problem because it, it just doesn't ring true to what's in the text. So obviously I have a big I have problems with that early dating. Again, I encourage you to do research and figure this out for yourself if, you, if you'd if you like. The late dating, however, I think is far more likely. And here's why. The late date would be not 68 AD, but 96 AD. And this would be in the reign of an emperor named Domitian, at the tail end of his reign. Now, here's why I think this. First, early church evidence again. The early church writers generally agree that it was written in Domitian's era. Irenaeus, Victorinus, Eusebius, Clement, Origen, all of them placed the writing of the book at the time of Domitian. Another thing is interesting is the history that's in the book. The churches that are referenced in chapters two and three of Revelation, um, We the history that that, scene, that that John ascribes them, that Jesus says, you know, Jesus gives these letters and these messages to the church. Well, what he describes in those messages don't match up with history if the if it's an early date, if the book was written in 68 AD. Let me give you an example. Um, first of all, there's one thing we know. Uh, very simply, churches generally don't lose their ardor and their passion and their faith within the first generation. Usually churches in their second or third and so on generations become weaker in their faith and they begin to fall, fall away. So it would be very odd if a church sprung up with such power, and then began to fall right away, as the book suggests in the letters. But let me use two examples. Laodicea is called rich in the Bible, in Revelation. They, Jesus refers to them as a rich church. But here's what we know from history. In 60 CE, so 60 AD, there was a great earthquake that destroyed Laodicea. And this was a time before modern construction equipment. It took a long time to rebuild that city. So it would be very odd if they could be called rich only a handful of years after the city was completely decimated by an earthquake in 68 AD, or the earthquake in 60 CE, and the, and the writing was only in 68. It's much more likely that the book was written 35, 36 years later, after Laodicea had been built up a little and regained something of its, of its wealth. Also, we know that the church in Smyrna wasn't founded until 64 CE. Yet, chapter 2, verses 8 to 11 in Revelation suggest, seem to suggest that they've been suffering and enduring persecution and such for quite a while. So, it would be interesting that, that Jesus would refer to them as being long-suffering when they're still an infant church. So, that's part of the, another reason I think the late dating makes much more sense. But there's also more. In chapters 13 to 20 of Revelation, there's a lot of talk about uh, about um, emperor worship and about worshiping other gods and, and such, and Babylon and so on. And the, uh, the, the, the reign of Domitian and the way he referred to himself, at least, I mean, it's debatable as always, as all of ancient history is, but that he referred to himself as Lord and God or as uh, Caesar as Kairos, as Lord. The way he claimed this sort of divinity um, and the way he demanded worship for of himself seems to fit better with what we're reading in, in Revelation, as if they were, had, had Domitian and the, that emperor in mind as they were writing. That seems to fit. We also know this. Babylon is a code word in Revelation for Rome, by and large. And the early writers, the the guys who claim the earlier date for Revelation, will say that Babylon doesn't mean Rome, but it means Jerusalem. Because remember, they think Revelation is a book that talks about the judgment on Jerusalem. And so they see, every time the word Babylon shows up in Revelation, they would say, no, it means Jerusalem. Whereas that sounds interesting, however, not only does it make less sense, but we also see no historical precedent. We know that using Babylon as a code word or code name for Rome had precedent in other books like the fourth letter of Ezra and second Baruch and the Sibylline oracles and many other ancient documents, extra biblical, meaning non-biblical documents. And so we see the precedent that Babylon meaning Rome makes much more sense, which, again, suggests later dating and certainly not the way the early daters would suggest. Another thing is interesting. The Apostle Paul refers to a lot of heretical groups and heresies in the early church. Yet, in his letters, he never mentions, the, for instance, the, the group the Nicolaitans that are mentioned in these first few chapters of Revelation. And that's interesting, because Paul has no problem calling out heresy. And yet, he never mentions heresy in the churches in Asia Minor, and never the Nicolaitans. And yet, it is a prime Um, uh, uh, it's mentioned intentionally and very clearly and specifically in Revelation. So it's interesting. Why would Paul leave this out? If it it was an early dating, you would expect Paul to to call out this heresy, but he doesn't. Now, so this dating suggests also that, I mean, uh, John says at the opening that he is writing and he's in prison because of the, the, the name of the Lord. So it's clearly he's being persecuted for his faith. And although we can debate the extent of the persecution under Domitian, what we do know is that there was persecution of some type there. And and as a result, it fits far better, again, with this time, I believe. And does it ultimately matter? Yeah, it does really matter, I think, because the later dating just simply fits the context better. And if we're going to know what the message of, the, of Revelation is, we need to know who it was written to as best we can because that will help us understand the purpose of the book. And we need to do that before we can apply it to ourselves. So, if we know that it was written, and let's take for granted that John the Apostle wrote it at the end of the first century under the reign of Domitian, then now we need to move on to this very important question of what kind of a book is Revelation? Meaning, what's the genre of Revelation? Turn again to Richard Bauckham, this great scholar. Here is what he says about Revelation. Quote, "Thus, Revelation seems to be an apocalyptic prophecy in the form of a circular letter to seven churches in the Roman province of Asia." Now, you can't see it cuz this is audio, but he says it's three different kinds of book rolled into one. It's apocalyptic, so it's an apocalypse. It is prophecy, and it is letter, epistle. And so Revelation is a document, is a, is, a, is a book, that is made up of three different genres of literature. Apocalypse, prophecy, and letter. And we need to understand what each of those means, because if we're, we need to know, remember earlier, we need to know what kind of a book it is, so we know how to approach it. If you're reading, for instance, and let me use an example, if you're reading a scientific textbook, then you would expect everything you see in the textbook to be literal, Right? But what if you approach a book of poetry and you approach it like a scientific textbook? Well, then you're going to have problems. And think about the Psalms. When the psalmist says that he drenched or he, his pillow was drowned in tears, well, that's just not true, right? That is because he didn't really drown in tears. It just means he cried a lot and his t- pillow was wet. And the reason we see, we understand that is because it's poetry. And poetry uses things like hyperbole to make a point, and so we we read poetry as poetry. We don't expect poetry to be a scientific textbook, and vice versa. So we need to know what kind of a book Revelation is so that we interpret it properly. So first let's start with apocalypse. What does it mean? What is apocalyptic literature? Well, John Collins, another great, great scholar, wrote, wrote a lot on Revelation, has a book that is actually called um, The uh, Apocalyptic Imagination. Excellent book. And here's what he says about Apocalypse. Quote, a genre, It's a genre of revelatory literature with a narrative framework in which a revelation is mediated by an otherworldly being to a human recipient disclosing a transcendent reality which is both temporal insofar as it envisages eschatological salvation and spatial insofar as it involves another supernatural world so what collins is saying is that john has a message that he is given a vision and he chooses to use the apocalyptic genre as a vehicle to communicate his prophecy and he does it as a letter so in our modern world, when you say apocalypse, you 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 get the images of the end of the world, right? That's what they say all the time. It's Snowmageddon and the, and the zombie apocalypse. It always refers to the end of the world, destruction, war, and yet apocalypse. In fact, the whole the book Revelation is called apocalypse in Greek. Well, it just means the revealing. Something when something is revealed, it doesn't mean destruction. Um, and in fact, it opens with the words, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, and this is far more helpful for us, <laughs> because when we understand it's the revealing of Jesus Christ, then we, then we realize something. It is not only something Jesus is revealing to us, like a story and a vision, but it is actually the revelation of Christ himself, that he himself is being revealed in the book of Revelation. And that alone really helps us, hopefully, keep ourselves um, from being too irresponsible as we read it because whatever this book is it is revealing to us who christ is and what he's done and what he's going to do that's important now revelation as an apocalyptic piece of literature is actually late to the party of apocalyptic literature and this sort of, of writing has been around for a long time by the time john writes revelation in the bible alone there's there's sections of apocalyptic literature for instance, in Daniel 7-12, Mark 13, Matthew 24, Luke 21, Isaiah 24-27, Ezekiel 38-39, and Zechariah 9-14. These are all apocalyptic literature. And not just that, there's a lot of extra-biblical apocalypses. So, uh, extra-biblical meaning books that are not part of the Christian canon of the Bible. Like, 1 Enoch, Second Esdras, or Fourth Ezra which dates from the first century AD, the Apocalypse of Peter, the Shepherd of Hermas, which is early second century. See, and when you take all of these forms of apocalyptic literature and you line them up and you compare them, there is, scholars have found that there's commonalities between these books and that apocalyptic literature has to have most, if not all, of these characteristics. And you're going to see there's five of them, that Revelation has at least four of them, maybe five, but probably four. So let me walk through those really quickly. The first characteristic of an apocalyptic work is the use of pseudonyms. So apocalyptic literature and writers tend to claim that they are other writers. They borrow the name of other people. For instance, Ezra, the books of Ezra, not not the book of Ezra in the Bible, but the the other letters, the second Ezra, third, fourth Ezra, um, and Esdras, they claim to be written by Ezra. But here's what we know that Ezra, in the Bible, lived at the time of when Israel returned from the exile in the 5th and 6th century B.C. However, we know that these letters of Ezra, of, of Ezra were written five or 600 years later, which means that what happens in, the, in these stories is they take the name of somebody else, and they do it because they're trying to add credibility to what they're writing, oftentimes, And also because they're trying to reinterpret historical events to allow them to communicate a larger theological point. So they're trying to reinterpret history through the eyes of a guy like Ezra or Moses or something. However, what Revelation does is it changes this a little bit. Revelation, this is the only one of the characteristics I think Revelation doesn't quite follow. John seems to have no need for a pseudonym. He just says he's John. He's confident as he stands in the Old Testament prophetic tradition as a prophet. And he doesn't claim that he is somebody else, which is unique in the the world of apocalypse. So we could argue that that Revelation doesn't have that one aspect that all other apocalypses share. But the second point is interesting too. The second characteristic is that apocalypses always contain angel-mediated messages, meaning That an angel comes and he serves as a mediator for God to humanity to communicate a message. We see that right away. Revelation 1, verse 1, says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants the things that must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. So, an angel mediated message. That's what apocalypses are. God sends a message to humanity, to a human a human recipient through an angel and revelation has that the third characteristic is a visit to heaven in most cases then off the author of the of the apocalypse takes this uh, excursion to heaven at some point in the message and he gets a glimpse behind the curtain he gets a, a glimpse at the the machinations of the spirit world and this of course happens in chapters 4 and 5 of revelation where john at the beginning of chapter 4 says after this i looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And so he is spirited off to this heavenly realm. So that's the third. So we have pseudonyms and angel-mediated messages and visits to heaven. Those are three characteristics of apocalyptic literature. The fourth one is a great emphasis on eschatology, judgment, and the end of the world. Now eschatology means the last things, you know, judgment, end times, that sort of a thing, the consummation of history. And What is interesting though, is that Revelation does things again a little differently here. It talks greatly, of course, about the end of the world and judgment. But in most Jewish apocalypses, they're preoccupied with the end of empires, not of the world. They're not normally focused on the end of all things and the renewal of them, Uh, or they they are focused on the renewal of, of the Jewish empire. But Revelation seems very focused on the destruction, the dissolution of the world, and then a restoration of all creation, heaven and earth, by God, which is a little different, a slightly different emphasis. So as such, as it does this, Revelation shows um, very typical pessimism, like all all apocalypses are quite pessimistic, but also shows incredible, remarkable optimism. It's pessimistic about human ability to prevent dissolution and the decline of human civilization. It says that humanity can do nothing to stop their, their decline and eventual destruction. Humans are, are inevitably sliding, slip sliding away, as Paul Simon would say. But it's also very optimistic. It says that God is, is incredible, not just willing, but will get involved to um, transform all things, to bring justice and renewal. So it's pessimistic about human ability, but greatly optimistic about God's willingness to change things. And the fifth characteristic of apocalypses is the use of incredible symbolism. Now here let me read a longer quote from Richard Bauckham. Here's what it says. It would be a mistake to understand the images of Revelation as timeless symbols. Their character conforms to the contextuality of Revelation as a letter to the seven churches of Asia. Their resonances in the specific social, political, cultural, and religious world of their first readers need to be understood if their meaning is to be appropriated today. They do not create a purely self-contained aesthetic world with no reference outside itself, but intend to relate to the world in which the readers live in order to reform and redirect the reader's response to that world. However, he keeps going, if the images are not timeless symbols, but relate to the real world, we need also to avoid the opposite mistake of taking them too literally as descriptive of the real world and of predicted events in the real world. They are not a system of codes waiting to be translated into matter of fact references to people and events. Once we begin to appreciate their sources and their rich symbolic associations, we realize that they cannot be read either as literal descriptions or as encoded literal descriptions, but must be read for their theological meaning and their power to evoke response. He is right. So symbols all have meanings, right? And they have real meanings. They're all at once symbolic. They point to something, but they're also pointing to something real. Think of a road sign that says Toronto, 40 kilometers away. Well, it's a symbol that tells you about something, but it points to something real. And so when we read these symbols in Revelation, we have to see something incredible. They were symbols not just for the Roman readers who wrote it, who read it at the time, but they're also symbols for us. And as a result, because they are both, they cannot be simply reduced to just being symbols for Rome with no applicability to us. But we also must avoid the more, I think, prevalent and dangerous interpretation of thinking that Revelation only has meaning for us, that it only speaks to our modern world and our time and had nothing to say to previous generations. You see, because Revelation is anchored in Roman context and we need to know it. Um, and so and t- so, if we come away from Revelation just saying, well, the Antichrist is is vladimir putin it is the pope or whoever else we say uh, people say he is um we have a problem aside from the fact of course that the, the word antichrist doesn't show up in the book of revelation at all but these images um they're very helpful to every generation see we need to understand this revelation has has to have a meaning no matter how we interpret it it must have meaning the symbols must have meaning not just for us today but they must have had significance and meaning for every generation of Christians before and after us. Otherwise, God is saying, hey, this book is um, really of no use. Don't open it up until this certain time, which is not true. So we can't simply say, well, the book, it's referring to po- the Pope or Putin or the Illuminati. Um, we have to be very careful, because if Revelation only speaks about a modern Canadian context In our world and speaks about a leader today and that's who it's always spoken about then that means it was not really of any benefit to John because while he was seeing the Antichrist and the dragon as emperors we would look back and say sorry John you were wrong had no help for you it's only for us which of course is not true and so revelation does not seek to inform us about specific figures in the world right now as much as it seeks to reveal the need for faithful endurance and the means by which we may endure in faith in a world that grows increasingly hostile to the gospel. So, that's what apocalypse is. It shares those five characteristics. okay, Pseudonyms, angel-mediated message, visit to heaven, eschatology, and symbolism. Now, it's also prophecy. The book itself calls itself prophecy five times. In chapters 1, verse 3, and in chapter 22, verses 7, 10, 18, and 19. John's activity in the book is characterized as prophetic four times in chapter 10, verse 11, and then in 19, verse 10, and 22, verse 6, and 9. The language itself suggests that John thought of himself as an Old Testament prophet. Um, in fact, all the oracles that he makes, the, the, the prophecies he makes against Babylon in chapter 18 and, uh, through to 19, verse 8, echo the oracles against Babylon in the Old Testament. He's picking up on the Old Testament prophetic tradition. Old Testament prophets. This is, I think, one of the most important things you can take away from this introduction. Old Testament prophets and prophecy, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and so on, they always point to the future or often point to the future. But they do it for the express purpose of doing two things, to comfort and to challenge. The prophets came, and even if they pointed to the coming destruction of Jerusalem by the the Assyrians or the Babylonians, they did it for two reasons. To comfort people, to say, God knows you are struggling and he has a plan to rescue you. But also to challenge, to tell Israel, you need to amend your ways. You're working against God and judgment is coming. And so Old Testament prophecy always aimed to comfort the oppressed and to with, to let them know God knows what's happening and He has a plan, but then to challenge the, the those who are who are causing the, the strife and causing the oppression, and so the intent of a prophecy in the Old Testament was never to create stargazers, never. Think of the book of Amos. Amos was prophesying at the temple in Bethel. And in his prophecy, he warns Israel that because of their idolatry, they have become a nation that is is, um, a social mess. Everybody is oppressed, there's great poverty, and so on. So, at the end of his prophecy, he does say, however, that judgment will come from a mysterious nation to the north. He never names the nation. He never says it's Assyria. And yet, that's who he's talking about. If somebody was listening to Amos prophesy, and after hearing all of what's going on about how they had been, uh, they had stopped worshipping God and that as a result their society was crumbling, if they had come to him and said, I know, it's Assyria, isn't it? That's the country. I should be looking for this country, this nation that's coming to destroy us. I imagine Amos would smack himself in the forehead and say, Are you kidding me? The message is to tell you that you are idolaters? And you need to amend your ways and fix your social, your social structure, your society. That's what this message is for. And you're worried about looking up at the sky to decide who is this nation that's coming? Well, Revelation is the same. It asks us to be comforted in our trials and to be spurred towards greater faithfulness to God in those trials. And so Revelation as a prophecy shares the same goals as prophecy. So it's apocalypse, it's prophecy, but it's also a letter. Now, it is addressed to, very clearly at the start of the letter, the seven churches of Asia, of, that are in Asia, a specific recipient. So you and I know very well that if a letter uh, comes to you and yet it's not addressed to you, you'd be rather foolish to think it was addressed to you. <laughs> now, and it may have some significance for you, but at least at the outset, you couldn't just brush past the fact that, hey, this letter wasn't written directly to you, at least at first. So we have to be humble in that way. And to understand if the book has any relevance to us today, we need to learn about the context. Let me give you an example. If you show up at your, you buy a new house, and when you get there, the first day, the mailman delivers a a letter. And the letter only says this on the inside. Trevor, see you at the harp on Claret Sunday. What do you make of that letter? What do you make of that message? Well, if your name isn't Trevor, then you assume well it's not written for me but it might be relevant to you so how do you go about determining if that message has any relevance to you well you need to start doing some research about it who is Trevor when was it written what what is the harp what does he mean he's going to see me um, what is what's clear at Sunday you have all these questions you have to uncover first and would it help if I told you this that is a text message I probably sent to friends of mine many times I have friends named Trevor two of them actually and I would say, Trevor, see you at the harp, which is a bar or was a bar in Mississauga, and I'll see you there on Claret Sunday. The British Open golf tournament gives out the Claret Jug as its trophy. So what that message is saying is, hey, I'll see you at the bar on Sunday to watch the British Open. But do you see, to understand that, I you need to know who Trevor is, when he's writing, what is the harp, where is the harp, what is the Claret Jug, or what does Claret mean, what is Sunday, all these things. You have to do all this contextual background, and then you can decide if it makes any sense for you. Well, we need to do the same. And yet what we find with the Revelation is just because it's addressed to a specific recipient doesn't diminish its relevance to you and I. But it does influence it. So here's what we do know. Symbolically, when the book, when John says, this and Jesus says, it's written to the seven churches, the number seven is significant it's the it's the Hebrew and the ancient number of perfection of wholeness and we know there was more than seven churches in Asia so why does he choose seven well it's because what he is saying is this this is written to the seven churches which means it's written to all the churches the messages that are given to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3 for instance you'll notice that your church probably shares characteristics with all seven of those churches And that's because the idea is this the message here is relevant to every church in every generation and that's important for us and we see later in the in the very first chapter again it says he who has an ear let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches meaning John and Jesus understood that this letter would be read to other churches outside of these seven let them hear let let anyone with an ear to hear hear what is said to these churches so, it was written with the intent that every generation would read it, every generation would identify with it, and it would be a comfort and a challenge to every generation. So, what did those images mean theologically and pastorally to John and his audience? You see, we need to figure that out first before we then apply them to ourselves. And that's what we're going to do in this series. So, so please listen to it if you can. Our interpretation, whatever it is, of the book of Revelation cannot limit it to relevance only to our, or their, or any generation. Revelation, whatever it's saying, must be a comfort for the church in every generation. Let's keep that in mind before we run away with it and make it into something that only speaks about something today. And not to be too facetious, but in the last few weeks, I'm, this is being recorded in March of 2022, and just in the last few weeks, I have, without a joke, Heard three different people referred to as the Antichrist. People have asked me as a pastor, is it Pierre Trudeau, or, uh, Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister? Is it Vladimir Putin? Is it the Pope? So uh, Bill Gates is another one I've heard. So now we got four. In the last few weeks we have changed our mind four times and my exasperated response is, stop stargazing. The book of Revelation is to comfort you when you're being pressed and then to challenge you to greater faithfulness to Christ. Greater obedience to Christ and his commands. That's the primary point. Not to get you speculating about who the characters in the book are. Now, let me close here. The imagery of the book needs to be talked about just a little bit. We've touched on it quite a bit already, but let's say a little bit more. Images communicate meaning. Listen to the first sermon of my series and you're, you're going to hear a bit more about this. Consider things like this. If I say that, there, oh, no, not not say it. Think about uh, the big golden bull statue that is outside the New York Stock Exchange. Google it if you don't know what it is. There's a bull outside of the Stock Exchange. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means a bull market. A bull market, in our terms, means a strong, healthy, growing stock market and economy. A bear market, by contrast, means a, a struggling one, one that is contracting. Now that's an image, isn't it? A bull isn't just a bull. And because of where it's situated outside the stock exchange, we know what it means. The symbol speaks to something. If if you know anything about American politics, you know that the conservative and Democratic Party are represented by an elephant and a donkey, respectively. So when you see those images on the screen or on something, you know those symbols speak to a political party and ideology. If you see a soccer player like cristiano ronaldo with goat horns <laughs> what does that mean you know to understand what that means you have to know something about soccer right and f- uh, football for my european friends and to know that many people think ronaldo to be the greatest player ever and when they call him the goat it's an acronym goat stands for greatest of all time g-o-a-t and so if there's a picture with ronaldo with horns and a goatee It's not that he's transforming. He's not demonic. It is symbol to show that people think he is the greatest soccer player of all time. But to understand and interpret that symbol, you need to know something about soccer and about the culture of it and who Ronaldo is and all these different things. And so to understand the images in Revelation, before we try to figure out what they are, you need to understand what they were meant to be in their original context. Otherwise, If I show you for instance a picture of a dragon eating a city you would and I asked you what was happening you may come up with all sorts of theories in fact I've done this and people have all kinds of theories about Godzilla and destruction of the world and yet if I told you that that cartoon was a political cartoon that was um, published in the LA Times the day that China took over Hong Kong you would then understand the image because you'd say oh yes China is symbolized by the dragon, and it's taking over, consuming the city of Hong Kong. Makes sense. But to know what it means, you have to know the context. And so we need to do the same. We need to understand Revelation's imagery and what it meant to John and his church and the readers at the time before we apply it to ourselves. And the best way to see our mistakes, generation after generation here, is to notice that every generation since Christ has believed it was in the end times. In fact, even the the Gospel writers and Paul seem to have thought that the end was coming imminently. We know that people at the fall of the Roman Empire in the fifth century AD would have thought, many thought this was the end of the world, the apocalypse. Uh, During the Crusades, the Black Death, the Napoleonic era, First World War, Second World War, Cold War, Iraq invasion, 9-11, COVID, convoys, Putin, Ukraine, In all of these situations, humanity has thought they were at the end of everything. And they were wrong. And that isn't to say that we should be ashamed of it. Instead, we should be humble and say the images in Revelation are meant to spur every single generation to be aware that the end could come at any time. And that should spur us to greater faithfulness, to greater feats of evangelism and faithfulness in the world. And that is the point. We have to seek to know what God intends through Revelation. No more and no less. So with that, let's call this to an end. It's been 55 minutes almost. Thank you for listening. Please, if you have any questions, you know how to reach me. Go to our church website, www.redeemerbible.ca. Reach out to me. You can do that any number of ways. Um, But please, if you attend uh, Redeemer, if you call us home, then Be a part of our sermon series. Be a part of the extra discussions and the studies we're going to be doing on Revelation because they're going to be incredibly encouraging to you, I think. If you're listening to this and you're not a part of Redeemer, first I would say, hey, go to your church. Love your local church. Honor your pastor. Love them and support them. Um, Be a part of your local church. We are not here to steal people. That being said, if you do not attend a church, Become a church member somewhere. Become a part of a local gathering of the body of Christ. That's the way to grow. That's the way to be sanctified, to be sharpened, and to sharpen others. Please do that. And if you're a skeptic or someone who is just checking out Christianity and you're in the Niagara region, then please, we'd love to have you at Redeemer because we love walking with people, especially skeptics, as they begin to encounter Christ. With that, thank you so much, and we hope to see you on Sundays.